Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 15 of Sleep Talk, uh, the latest in our series of podcasts, uh, All Things Sleep. And welcome, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. This month, we're going to be talking about sleep trackers, so measuring sleep. Everyone seems to be wearing some sort of sleep tracker. Well, at least they were in 2016. We'll see what happens in 2017. And we'll try and get into what their role is and are these things actually useful tools, get under the hood a bit with some of the technical aspects, as well as you know give you our context of how we think they're useful in a clinical sense. So how's your year going, Moira? Have you gotten back into school and work and everything? Yeah, yeah, just. <laughs> You've had a good break over summer and certainly routines are all back to normal as of you know as of now yeah i have too i've actually sort of taken it pretty easy which is a bit unusual for me over january or at any time it's good to hear yeah good on you new new year's resolution new beginning and interesting i did write a post in the last few weeks about um something we often see with clients is that people are very focused on to get sleep better you focus on what you do at night but for a lot of people we see it's actually that they're busy during the day Mm-hmm. It's that thinking style of always thinking about what's the next thing, not being comfortable, actually just pausing. Or, and so a big blind spot for people is thinking about the, the day. And with everyone getting back into school and work mm-hmm. now come February, it's important just to keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, sometimes it may be a case of too little, too late if, it, if you're not really thinking about it until the last minute. Then yeah. right, what do I need? Give me some strategies at 10 o'clock at night. Yep. It's actually yeah, well before that they need to be gearing down. So what's been in the news or what's caught your eye this month about sleep? We've both been involved with talking about the big show in Las Vegas. What was it called? The Consumer... Consumer Electronics Show. That's yeah. got to be right up your alley. <laughs> yeah. I almost went there. No, no. To be honest, I hadn't even heard about it. But... In my capacity as, you know, Sleep Health Foundation board member and media spokesperson, I spoke about it, which I could speak about it. Not that I'm an expert in technology, but in, I guess, the the wisdom around trackers, which we're getting, that's, that's a good theme, actually, that it's all, yeah. that's why we're talking about it. What else did you notice over the, what's caught your eye this month? Yes, that was the same month. for me. There was quite a lot of stories early in January about the Consumer Electronics Show because there was that particular section on sleep technology. And it's always, you know, some product release and everyone's interested in the next new thing. And, yeah. And the next sort of gadget, I spoke on 774 a bit about, you know, what are the, some of the limitations? And I'll put a link to that interview in the show notes. Also, it's talking about summer and, and interviews. There's been a lot of stuff in the media around sleeping at night, sleeping in the heat. Mm-hmm. I bet you've done a lot of interviews on that. Yes, I've had a couple of interviews about that. And, yeah. you know, it's been unusually hot. You know, some of the nights have been really yeah. quite Although quite not warm. in Mel- ironically not for us necessarily, don't you think? Well, me... I- I guess over the summer I was mostly coastal or mountain <laughs> and it was actually reasonably cool. But I could tell with the weather and the media, there was so much yeah, sweltering nights all around and still and still continuing throughout February and March, I'm sure. We probably should probably should maybe, not in this podcast, but we need to tease that out a little bit more maybe maybe next summer. Yeah. Do a whole we, podcast on that. Yeah, on, on sleep and temperature yeah. and environmental yes. conditions yeah. and things. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So there is a post on Sleep Hub about sleeping in the heat and that also got picked up by a couple of other media outlets. So I'll put links to other stories about sleeping in the heat in the show notes. So we're joined by James Slater and I'll introduce James formally a bit later, but there's also a research study that one of James' postgraduate students is running about sleep. So what is that, James? Isabel is a research student at School of Psychology, Monash University, and she's looking into the more unusual things that people do when they sleep. 
sleepwalking, moving about when they're dreaming, that sort of thing. Mm. We know that there might be some relationships between what people do during the daytime and when they're going to bed, carrying stress with them into their sleep, that sort of thing. And she's interested ah. in teasing those relationships out. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So if someone's interested in, you know, they're aware that they're sleepwalking or sleep eating, because that was one mm. of the other conditions, mm -hmm. and interested in participating in the study, what, what should they do? They should take a look at her website, which I think you've got going up with this podcast. Do you know off the top of your head, is it 18 to 65-year-olds or more limited than that? It is yeah. 18 to 65-year-olds, yeah. and yeah. there's a couple of... Uh, requirements for the different groups that she's looking for. She's looking for people who have got a few different disorders as well as people who are generally healthy or oh, so good. they might think about their sleep. They Great. can have it screened by her if they want to as well. I'm sure we've got plenty of people too. I'm sure people listening to this and people we see in our clinic, I'm sure there'll be lots of response to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hope. so that's what we hope to be able to do is to help out with the research and identify some people that can participate. So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep trackers. And as we talked about in the introduction, lots of people are wearing some type of activity tracker, be it a branded device like Fitbit or Jawbone or Garmin or a whole range of different devices. And those devices supposedly measure sleep and give people feedback about their sleep and then some instructions on how to actually measure sleep. I hope you're not going to say that they're all bit old hat because I haven't got one yet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking about getting one soon. Oh, yeah, risk-based activity. <laughs> That's so 2016, Moira. Come on, you know, get, get with the times. And there's, a, you know, although I'm really into this tech stuff and really try and keep on top of it, there are so many devices. There's almost a new thing every week and claiming to be the perfect measure for sleep, the perfect tool to get you sleeping better, fix all your sleep problems. It's just impossible to keep up with. So rather than talk about specific devices, we'll try and get into how some of these things work, some of the things we think about when we're thinking about measuring sleep, and some of the limitations we, we may see for this uh, style of thing. So a guest who's going to help us in talking about this is James Slater, and you heard from James a little earlier. Uh, James is a lecturer and researcher at the Centre for Sleep Science at University of Western Australia. Uh, he's also a clinical scientist at Monash Health in their sleep laboratory and a lecturer and research supervisor at School of Psychology at Monash University. James has particular expertise on sleep assessment and he's written art journal articles and textbook chapters and technical papers in this area. Thanks for joining us, James. Hi, David and Moira. Hi, everyone. Hi. So, yeah, so grateful you've come in. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. We will access your expertise in some of the technical aspects around uh, sleep measurement, which will be really nice for trying to get under the hood with some of these things. So one of the concepts to try and sort of talk about initially when we're thinking about measuring sleep is what are we actually measuring when we're measuring sleep? And sometimes people are very focused on it's a sleep study or a sleep diary. But one way of conceptualising measuring sleep is thinking about it from a few different viewpoints. So one viewpoint would be how does sleep feel? That's often different from another viewpoint, which would be what does it look like to somebody else, which is different again from thinking about it physiologically. So what are the brain and body doing physiologically? And different again from thinking about it functionally. So how well did sleep work? And often when we're working clinically with patients, people say, look, yeah, I'm not sleeping well. But if you tease them out, it may be that they don't think it doesn't feel right. Or for someone else, it's the partner says it doesn't look right. Or it may be that it's not working right. They're feeling like they've got a functional issue. So it is important to try and get that perspective of what is it you're actually trying to measure 
with sleep. So what are you seeing mm. in clinical practice, Moira? Is this something you often have trouble with communicating with yeah, people about? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point because often what we're measuring, well, the data we collect, whether it's paper form, the old-fashioned sleep diary, or whether it's a, a full-blown sleep study with multiple channels of physiological recording, it doesn't necessarily equate to what their experience is or what someone else is telling you about it. So that's my fear, and we'll get into that discussion later, about how much we, we can always have really great technology and we can always measure things. But I think the subjective experience, either both during the sleep or before the sleep and, and the sleep outcomes, obviously from a psychological point of view, are the things that I'm most interested in anyway. Mm-hmm. Because we come across a lot of the time, like sleep state misperception, where in fact like nearly everyone has a degree of that. Yeah. But sometimes it's really marked, like eight to six hours out. Yeah. of what. So in that, I don't know, I still don't know how to handle that very well. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's still a tricky stumbling block, really, isn't it? When someone's saying, I don't sleep at all, yeah. and, you, and you show them eight hours of sleep. But it's interesting, like in a clinical sense, we use that language, sleep state misperception, mm. but that implies someone's right and someone's yeah, wrong. Yeah, that's right. Well, and they're wrong, really. They're right. They're, they're, they're implies, misperceiving right? it. Whereas I quite like that framework I talked about where it's just looking at it from different angles. Mm. And mm. just because it, it feels one way to someone and mm. physiologically it um, measures different to how it feels mm. or how we'd expect it to feel. Mm. doesn't mean either's right or wrong. They're just different ways of Yeah, because we do need it. measurement. I mean, if we're talking science, which we are, we, yeah. I mean, you need baseline. Well, you need pre – you need, you know, you need data, yeah. don't you? You need to be able to work out what's going on and whether things are improving or not. Yeah, and I must say, it is one of the clinical traps I see people falling into. So a number of people in the last week, you know, referred from psychiatrists who are on six or seven different medications, all with the aim of it getting them to sleep. Mm. But when you actually measure physiologically what the brain's doing, technically the brain's sleeping and actually sleeping uh. well. But what it felt like to them was they weren't asleep. And so these medications are just add another one, add another one, and another one. Whereas if you actually, once you get the measurement, mm. you find actually the brain's doing a pretty good job physiologically yeah. of sleeping. It's, so we're treating but the, the pers- feeling. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, it becomes a different thing. So, so measurement can be uh, really helpful. What about you, James? You know, what do you think? There's no direct measure between sleep physiologically and psychologically and yeah. what someone mm-hmm. thinks and feels about their sleep. And I don't know if there ever would be, really. No. It's just a fundamental aspect of sleep. And it's not unique to sleep medicine, but in all areas of healthcare, mm-hmm. we would want the technology and the measure to be driven by a purpose, not just us as researchers creating one, but the way that health practitioners utilize it. And if you've got a polysomnogram, which is a very complicated sleep study of lots of different channels, that's not going to pick up what someone feels about their sleep. But you wouldn't expect it to either, just as you were saying, where if we wanted to look at what someone's patterns were, we could use something to measure what their behavioral patterns are, Mm. but we might not get out of it other things of interest, like maybe their heart rate or their blood pressure. Yeah, I like that point, James. I like that sense of... Often a lay way of thinking about it is there's a direct correlation between how sleep feels and what we might measure. But in actual fact, there's there's not a direct correlation, nor a ratio, nor a mathematical equation. We can put one and predict another. Absolutely right. And at the moment, all we've got is, well, actually, we do have wonderful technologies for measuring sleep, but Mm. there's so many and there's so many to choose from. And they're quite complicated. This is why we have specialists in this area of health. So so I'll have a job for a while, yeah? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that the expertise in interpreting those numbers is a really important part. That's what I find my role increasingly is. I'm sure facilitating measurement, but more in, well, what do those numbers mean? 
to, to an individual. New things will keep coming out as well, which means everyone has to be kept on their feet. But in research, we are really lucky to work pretty closely with clinicians mm. and we usually start off developing new technologies based on what they're telling us and what patients really need in sleep. It's a bit hard to connect someone's thoughts and feelings to a convenient number that we can just, you know, email yeah. to someone. Well, there's so much variation as well all the time in someone's sleep per se and their, and their thoughts and feelings about their sleep. Mm. Like it, it changes, or should, it can change, but whether the perception of it changing may, may sometimes stays quite stagnant. Aside from the sleep state, there's lots of other stuff that happens when you're asleep. You move, you breathe, mm. your heart rate changes, there's other people in your bed, mm. the temperature overnight changes, your temperature changes, but one of the other fundamental aspects of sleep is that we don't have that awareness. We're not aware of what's going on. It's quite a natural part of sleep to wake up quite a few times overnight, but you wouldn't normally remember most of them because they're so very, very brief, but you need someone to help you understand what that normal might be for you. Yeah. In terms of other concepts around measurement of sleep, so often when we think about sleep measurement, people talk about a sleep study, and by that they are quite, you know, what we would do, we technically call it polysomnography, Someone may come into a hospital, lots of leads on their head to measure EEG and other things to measure breathing in the cardiovascular system. But a sleep study technically could actually consist of anything that measures sleep. So James, if one extreme is a sort of a full PSG and it's limited by it's a snapshot sort of one night, but it is really high fidelity data, and the other extremes are, you know, really low fidelity paper, sleep diary sort of three months of a sleep diary and each has a role you know what are you looking for you know what sort of fits in between and what are the roles for those sort of measurements again the purpose drives which one we might use there's a few different types of polysomnograms so we have ones that we can do at home and we have ones that people need to come into a lab to do and it would be used mainly for picking up breathing and movement disorders so we don't use that one to test for people who have insomnia and those record hundreds of channels of data every second and there is less uncomfortable less intrusive forms of polysomnogram where it's just a maybe an airflow sensor that sits on your nose and a band around your chest or an oximeter probe on your finger that measures your blood oxygenation. We would use that to screen someone, so we might not get a really clear diagnosis out of that, but we could see if someone has a high probability of having maybe sleep apnea. And then there's a few other measurement technologies that we use. Sleep diary you mentioned, and that's one that I think is not commonly thought of in healthcare because it's fairly simple. It's mm. not as you know, interesting as the other sleep tracker technologies say, but it is pretty important and it does give us a good bit of subjective information about what someone thinks and what their behavioural patterns are. Sometimes it's all we need. And sort of in between that, there's everything else that's happening and very, very much rapidly changing at the moment. Actigraphy, which is a research and uh, healthcare-grade technology, and there are some consumer equivalents to that as well. And there's some similar ones. So there's newer devices that are using radio frequency sensors to see if you're moving or if you're breathing overnight, which I think is fascinating, but mm. at the moment mm. still in development. And there's photoplethysmogram, which is where I think there are sleep trackers that use those. So they beam a little bit of light into your skin and see how much oxygen there is in your uh, more surface level skin rather than an oximeter probe, which passes a light all the way through your finger yeah. from one end to the other. Gosh, haven't heard of that. This sounds good. <laughs> yeah, and I like the concept of, you know, that what you said about tool for purpose, you know, trying to th the starting point being what's the question you're trying to answer and then actually choosing an appropriate tool to answer that question. Because, you know, when I'm managing someone clinically, often I both want 
the short-term high-fidelity data, so that sort of broader short-term picture of, you know, how does everything integrate? But then I also want a long-term thing of how do things vary over time? What are averages over time? What are variations on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis? And a single night's sleep study actually doesn't give me that. But I'm often not thinking one or the other. I'm often thinking, well, they're complementary and they provide complementary pieces of information. You talked a bit about actigraphy, which is a somewhat of a middle ground between sort of PSG and a consumer sort of tracking device or a sleep diary. Just talk us through, James, what's actigraphy? Actigraphy, so just in contrast to the ones that we were talking about, it's a repeated measure, so we can do it for many nights. And that means that we can look at the patterns over time of something that's happening. And sleep trackers, even the ones you can buy in the shop, they offer that too. They might offer it for a few different measures within it. Actigraphy's conceptual premise is that we're measuring someone's movement because we know that when people are asleep, they stop moving. And when people are awake, it means that they're awake. So if we know someone's in bed from 10pm until 8am and they said that uh, I couldn't sleep for hours, it took me hours to fall asleep, and we look at their actigraph and it says that they fell asleep at probably 11pm. It's maybe not as bad as they're thinking, but they're in that state where they're not quite asleep, not quite awake. We can look at that over quite a few nights. We can look at the graph alone. Looking at the graph from an actigraphy device, we can see if someone's sleep patterns change, if they get too active before they go to bed, if they're getting much activity during the day. And... um, so with that premise that with your, if you're asleep, then you're not moving, and if you're awake, you're moving, obviously that's – I think a lot of the sleep trackers, which you know much more about it than I do, a lot of them use that too, but a lot of them have other way, other technology of, of differentiating whether someone's asleep or awake. Are, you know, traditional actigraphy that we're all being comfortable with for 20 years or more within our research in the sleep world, are they known to be more accurate than the sort of – consumer, you know, grade sleep trackers? They're not, but they have potential and we're still figuring out. And every time we figure it out, another one comes out. (laughs) The technology that's inside the devices is the same for all of them. There's one key part of what makes this technology work, and that's an accelerometer. You have one in your mobile phone. You can find one in any consumer-grade actigraphy device. You can find one in the medical-grade ones. They all work much the same. They're detecting whether a movement has happened or not, and they will be record. The little device will record that. We'll download those movements into a computer, and we'll analyze it using software and algorithms to see whether someone is asleep or awake from that movement. And that bit, bit is a bit technical. And that's where the differentiation is between the consumer grade and the research medical grade technologies, the research and medical ones. We know what the hardware is. We know what the computer software is. There might be a little bit of corporate owned aspects to the software, but we know how it does its job. The ones that you would get from the shop, your Fitbit, Jawbone, that sort of thing, that part is property of the company and Mm. Obviously, they've developed a device that they're very excited about and money is something that has driven them to do that good work and they want to get a return on their investment, which is fair. But that means that we don't know what's going on inside the device, particularly for the software and the algorithms. And because of that, we can't evaluate it the same way that we would for medical-grade devices where we can evaluate every part of it, every way that it yeah. works. Yeah, and you don't get that full data disclosure. So, That's so right. Whereas if we're doing actigraphy, you know, we can actually pull up on the screen the raw data, get a sense of there the raw data looks bad, I'm actually going to scrub that bit or change my threshold. Whereas a consumer device, you just got to, with blind faith, take it at face value that the number X 
comes out as your number at the end, then that's correct without any ability to review it, edit it or adjust it. And I think that's, for me, one of the the differences. Because we did some research looking at consumer activity trackers and in the sleep laboratory and showed they actually work reasonably well. The bit that was different was that they failed about one in five nights either mm. to sync the data or something just didn't quite work or we weren't happy with the data quality. And if you're using a professional solution in a research setting, you can't afford for your data to fail one in five nights. No, it's, it's got to work. pretty high percentage. Yeah. yeah, it's got to work every single night. If you're a trained researcher or a clinician working with it, you'll know what to do with that night and how many you would need. But if you're someone who's using a sleep tracker, it's a bit harder to know what to do with it. If you talk to anyone who's got one of them, you'll hear stories about you know, they were cooking and it thought that they were out for a run doing some incredibly intense exercise but actually they were just getting really technical with the saucepans or whatever it was or they were carrying the shopping in from the car and it thought they were doing weights or (laughs) it thought they were asleep but they were just sitting on the couch or they were in front of the computer at work doing some reading there's not really a way to edit it for many of the devices Mm -hmm. and many people wouldn't confidently know how to do that anyway there's some other features of the devices that make them become a little bit different to each other so they might monitor your heart rate or something else and that can make them a little bit more accurate but that is difficult to compare device to device and say one's better than the other because they're also different in that respect. So can I ask you a couple of technical things James? So we've talked about wrist-based activity trackers but there was you know going back three or four years ago the thing about put your smartphone under your pillow and there's still a device that you put a little sensor under a pillow you know does it matter what movement you measure? Is wrist best? Are others better? It really does matter. And this is something that I'm researching myself. I've tried to get actigraphy to work on the hip. Mm. And because when you're in bed, you, you do move your hip. You turn over, you change position. But it's just not the same as the wrist. And my own thoughts on that is that the wrist movement is quite intentional. So if someone's awake and they move their wrist, it's because they're doing something with it. And mm-hmm. if someone's in bed, there's some times where we might get a bit of inaccuracy because they're asleep and they're not moving but often there'll be some subtle movements of the wrist that will tell us that, yeah, actually they're still awake. On the hip, we just don't get that because they're quite likely to be laying still on their back or on their side. The smartphone under the pillow has never really passed the bar from um, medical research evaluation. Could be useful. I think it's not something we should completely throw out. We can see what patterns are going on. So if someone activates that smartphone app at the same time every night, great. We know they're going to bed regularly. Yeah. We otherwise might not have that information. But can it tell if someone's asleep or awake? No, not really. There's other technologies as well. So there's the Pebble, the hip-worn activity trackers that are more for exercise, pedometers, that sort of thing. There's a bit of potential there. And some people have tried to to make them work to measure sleep, but it's much the same as the smartphone app under the pillow, unfortunately. And then, you know, we've talked a bit about the recording the data. What about the post-recording analysis? You know, I often think with sleep measurement, the easy part is getting the data in the can or in the computer. The really hard part is then turning those sort of multiple channels of data into numbers and numbers that actually make sense. So what are some of the things people need to be cognizant of in that respect? There's a lot of editing that needs to happen, especially for the clinicians. So if you're analysing and interpreting a study, you really need to take a look at that recording and compare it to what someone has told you about their sleep. So if they said, I had a really horrible night on a particular night, you need to have a look at it and not just look at the numbers spread across the time period. The data itself tends not to need to be edited. So analysing a polysomnogram is very intense. It takes us sometimes a couple of hours to analyse someone's sleep. It's very involved, but analysing actigraphy can be quite quick. 
the algorithm does most of the work for us. The time-consuming part is taking what someone has said about their sleep, they've written down in a diary or otherwise, and putting it into the system so that we can gather all of that information together. We also have to watch out for a few other things. We need to see that what our clock on the device is, is what the clock on the computer should be. We need to be careful not to use any of the proprietary features unless we know what they're doing. So mm -hmm. Some of the medical-grade ones do collect other data like light or heart rate, but that might not be something that you should be basing your assumptions on. And the data itself, sometimes we just see complete device failure, we'll need to exclude it, we would need to make sure that if there is drift, maybe we have a way to account for it, and we need to use the correct algorithm for someone. So sometimes they're better for people with certain conditions or of a certain age, and if we're expecting that someone has a sleep disorder, maybe movement disorders or sleep apnea, we might expect to see their sleep is a bit fragmented, but we also know the technology works not quite as good as someone with fairly ordinary sleep, but it does still work, just with not the same level of accuracy. So, Maria, you know, we've talked about how. Can I ask you as a psychologist, should yeah. we be measuring sleep? What's yeah. the pros and, and cons oh, of that? Yeah, well, of course, there's different contexts. Of course, if we're talking research setting, absolutely. You know, we, we need to measure sleep. We need to have data and all those sort of outcome measures. I do have concerns of the, the average person in the population maybe equating their measuring their own sleep and maybe and believing that not knowing anything about editing, not knowing anything about maybe device failure or, and, and maybe thinking they're only getting five hours of night's sleep when in fact they might be getting more and it might be restless or they might be getting less. And I, I just think it's, I mean, you know, we sort of joke about me being a bit of a dinosaur with technology. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just being anti-technology. I yeah. don't think I'm speaking from that point of view. I'm speaking from a... a, a a viewpoint where I do get concerned that people might get hung up on, on numbers and data that may not be accurate mm -hmm. and it may not be the full picture yeah. because it may, as you talked about in the, the, at the front, at the top end of this podcast, there's a whole range of different things in measuring sleep. It's, you know, it's, the device might be just be the physiological recording, but there may be, there's a whole lot of other stuff to do with their experience, like how they feel during the day, how someone else presents them when someone says, no, you sleep, you looks like you're asleep to me. Yeah. <laughs> you, look, you look like you slept all night. And I think the good thing, the only, one of the best things about, not the only good thing, the yeah. best things about these devices that have been around for a long time, but now a lot more of them are including sleep. The best thing is that it becomes at the forefront of people's mind that sleep is very important measure. It's a very important thing in terms of your general well-being. So I just don't know about the accuracy sometimes or the, the importance or the need to actually have the actual data when there's other ways of yeah. monitoring sleep in terms of, you know, it doesn't have to be a technological monitoring. It can be some other type of, of monitoring. Yeah. I love that people are talking about sleep as much these days. It's wonderful. But, oh, and I'm the technology guy. Absolutely. I find this yeah. stuff exciting. I spend yeah. most of my working life dealing with it. Yeah. But I share your feelings about it. I'd be very worried about someone taking this too seriously or focusing mm. in on it too much or yeah. thinking that what this is telling me is that I have a problem. Yes. I think if you are yeah. thinking your sleep about that much, if you're thinking about your yeah. sleep that much, you probably need to see someone about it. We know mm. that people are pretty bad at interpreting things with their own little biases and confirming what their fears are or what their hopes are. That's yeah. right, and yeah. Even if and the number is completely accurate, mm. you still need someone to... Have your back yeah, with that. You, you do. You need a trained professional still and to actually just have that data in not in isolation, lined up with other other things about how they're performing, you know, how that what they're 
how they're functioning, what other aspects of the health are intact or not and stress levels, etc. So some of the devices not only will give you, you know, you've had five hours of sleep, they'll give you a score. You got yeah. 75 out of 100. Yeah. So how do, how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, again, I'm sort of the doomsayer here. And I'm a little bit, although excited about the technology, because I need to be, you know, I'm, I'm embracing that. <laughs> I just, I just, I worry, I fear, because I, I suppose the people who are closest to me in my clinical work, like who I've worked with closely, intimately for so long, and I care so much about, I, do, I know their type. And if you're listening, if you've got insomnia, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if they, they're very um, competitive with them, so they've got it very driven. Yeah. And so they'll really, if they've got 75, they'll try and get 85. They'll try and beat the device or try and beat themselves and their best score. And they might just drive up the very thing we need to actually keep a bit low, which is yeah. their arousal level. That's just a cautionary word about sort of scores and things on, on in terms of sleep. Their sleep might have been good in the first place. So you're right to be concerned about that. If someone's yeah. trying to drive up a score that might not mean much or yeah. be of yeah. great use to them anyway, that's maybe not the best place yeah. to focus your sleep. It might be better to spend a bit of time not trying to figure out technology before bedtime or getting an extra five minutes of sunshine in during the day. Yeah, so we're talking each other's language, yeah, James. <laughs> but, uh, but it's hard to strike that balance between using a device to give you insight, you know, make sleep a priority, insight into some things you might be able to do better around sleep versus... Hmm drawing too much into it, chasing it, gamifying it, yeah. you know, getting obsessed about it. Yeah. Some of the better devices, you can use it a bit for that. So you can see from one night to the next a fairly simple score which will tell you that that night was probably better than the night before by a few points and gamifying yeah. it can be good for motivating some people for sure. Yeah. If you yeah. don't have a motivational problem already, <laughs> yeah. then you might not need it. And mm. if you wake up feeling tired or sleepy, the score is pretty much irrelevant. You should yeah. be doing something about that that's right that's pretty a good summary really it's more it's, it's your subjective feelings and, and your functional outcome of what you're able to do or not do during the day and other things which i'm much more interested in people taking note of than than the score and also i should preface it with or you know that we're talking about a general population or we're talking about people with insomnia and, that, and it's yeah. two different distinct yeah, groups. Nice, nice point. So I guess what, when I spout my views and my cautionary tales, it's really about people who already do have some difficulty with their sleep and with their arousal levels and with their over-focus on sleep. But, you know, I'm, I'm smart enough to know that it's a good thing in general that we are we've got technology and ways of measuring things and for people to to have access to that is not over it's not a bad thing it's just yeah. just a few little cautionary tales so james we've talked about sort of sleep trackers and what's available now looking ahead what what type of devices are we going to see in the future that's that's a massive crystal ball that's needed there i think in medical science we'll see a little bit more specific devices so things that might do a really particular purpose so actigraphy is a, a good example of it we can use it to measure movement but maybe someone who does sleepwalking we might be able to use it in the future just to see if that happens or not using video is a new thing as well so people have got video in their smartphones we might be able to get ways to activate it to just observe parasomnias where people are you know, moving about or getting up and having a snack when they are actually still asleep. And in the more consumer-grade devices, I think we'll see a little bit of that. So we're going to see whatever trend is coming up. So gamification is one that people will be sharing more about their sleep and what they're doing, which is interesting. I think we'll get better at utilising those devices in healthcare as well. So, so many people have got yeah. these that there is really great potential to utilise the data, but... Mm -hmm. 
we haven't quite got there yet, but we're very, very close. Yeah, yeah. No, nice point. Uh, and that's often what I'm trying to talk to my trainees about is rather than dismiss consumer-grade data, is actually see it as complementary to the data you're going to collect via sleep study and integrate it because people are collecting it, they're coming to seek some interpretation and advice based mm-hmm. on it. So, yeah, don't dismiss it. So one of the things I've had clinically is problems getting good actigraphy that I can really rely on in a clinical sense. So, James, you're solving that problem for us. You launched a new service for actigraphy for clinicians. I have, yeah, with a colleague from UWA in Dunican, where we're offering a service where we perform the studies and give a bit of after support for the clinicians. It's a technology that is not used uh, as much in Australia as it could be. Lots of people know about it, lots of sleep labs have them in their cupboards or they know that they could be using it, they've considered it, but it's just not something they're confident with. So we're offering the device and the analysis, but also that extra help with making sure people know how to utilise both the device and the analysis, but maybe more importantly, what it might mean for their patient. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Yeah, so the patient takes it home for a number of weeks or days or whatever we want. Yeah, we're doing it all remotely so that we yeah. can service pretty much the whole country. Fantastic. We would mail it out to someone, talk to them on the phone, tell them what they need to do, give them a heap of support materials as well, give a follow-up phone call while they're wearing it. And they'd wear it for two to four weeks depending on what the study need is and it would just get sent back to us. We'll analyse it and send it off to the specialist that referred them to us. Exciting. Yeah, and that's a really good service. Exactly as you said, we know we've got actigraphy devices in, in the cupboard and mm. I'd use them clinically because I see the clinical need but I don't have the technical expertise to manage the data mm. sort of process. So really that solves that problem for me. You know, you'd be giving me data I can believe in. Using a technology has been well validated in the research sense and I think it would be a really helpful tool. Thank you, I hope so. Yeah. So how can people access that service if they're looking for that? They can take a look at our website, sleepandperformanceanalytics.com. Great. So if people are looking for more information on this topic, uh, there are a number of posts on Sleep Hub about activity trackers and I'll put the links in the show notes. There was an interview on TV on A Current Affair a couple of years ago looking at using activity trackers for getting some insight into sleep in people that felt they had some sleep problems but not necessarily insomnia and that might give you some background in how we think about using these devices. In a more technical sense the Society of Behavioural Sleep Medicine has also just put out some guidelines for health professionals on the use of actigraphy. So Moira, what's your clinical tip of the month? Well, in in keeping with the theme of, of monitoring devices and things like that, my clinical tip for those clinicians out there is that self-monitoring and self-awareness are, are really key and fundamental elements of health and of any behaviour change and have been around since before we were born, like there's fundamental things. However, they are really just the foundation blocks of actually, you know, gathering the data of whatever it is. And in my day when I was training, it was not electronically. It was just as a psych- as a training psychologist, we've been taught from a very, very early age to always gather data, like to actually, whether it's about a sleep diary, a mood diary, mm-hmm. or food diary, whatever it is, for people to get a sense of the patterns, what's going on. You know, it can be quite informal or formal the way they were doing it. So it's important that the actual ch- people to be aware, though, that the actual changes are uh, after that, that the data collection is just is that phase and any kind of behaviour change or any kind of improvements in health will come after the data. So the data itself is not not the actual intervention mm-hmm. because some people think that with their with their activity, their Fitbits yeah, and their things, they're, yeah. they're getting really fit or they're going, I'm going to get really this and that this, this year and, and it's really just the start of it. So for, to encourage or to remind 
their clientele who are wanting to improve their sleep or improve their fitness and they may be looking at devices and they wanted to get into that market and for all of us using those just to be aware that they're still going to have to be other you know hard work and resilience and goal setting and focus and all those other things and, and support so that's my clinical tip. Great. What about the pick of the month? What have you got for us this month, Dave? So mine's, again, tech-related. So there's a website that I really like toying with, as we'll show you what I do late at night, okay. called sleepingtime.org. And if you put in someone's Twitter handle into that website, it predicts their sleep patterns based on the times that they tweet. Ah. And, and so people you're interested in following on Twitter, you just put in their handles and it'll tell you, you know, when they're sleeping. So if you put in Donald Trump, which is real Donald Trump, on Twitter, it predicts that he sleeps between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. We actually know from other media reports he sleeps a bit shorter. Than I was going to say that's that's a bit longer than I would have expected. He does like to wake up and send off an early morning tweet. Having been a, a follower of his Twitter account now for a couple of months, because it is oh, very. Do you need some counselling? Yeah, certainly do. <laughs> you know that three to four a.m. tweet has been quite characteristic. So I'm not sure why it tells tells people that he wakes at 5am. But anyway, have a bit of fun with that site. It's a nice oh, insight. That's good. What about you, Moira? Wow, my pick of the month. Well, as I said, the last last month really, January, I was really not doing much. I was really disengaging from work and so doing a lot of sleeping myself, but also a lot of cleaning. So, and I... It, <laughs> clean. Is that an insight into anything, Moira? Well, I got given over Christmas the book, the bestseller, the 30 million copies have been sold, the the, um, the magic art of tidying. Have you seen that? The Marie no. Kondo? I'll put no. it in the show notes <laughs> okay, because it's you. a really good book about decluttering. And she says in that, I thought she said, I couldn't find the reference to it because it was back in the early. But anyway, I thought she had said in that that when you clean up, it's not just your house that's tidy. You actually, people often can lose weight even or sleep better because their environment's, you know, better. So yep. anyway, so I was, and it got me thinking, I thought, I wonder if there's any articles out there on the benefits of if there's improved sleep with a, a tidier, a cleaner environment, something silly. But anyway, lo and behold, I came across this thing called clean sleeping. There was a lot of headlines in the tabloid press, tabloid media, you know, headlines like could clean sleeping be 2017's big health trend? And there's there's hundreds of articles. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I thought, I don't, I've worked in the sleep field for 20 years. I don't even know what clean sleeping means. So that's my – anyway, I'll put a little link to that because it's a – Gwyneth Paltrow, who's a, a celebrity, you know, Oscar-winning actress and many other things, sleep, blogger, sleep expert. sleep expert now. She's got all these healthy sleep tips for clean sleeping. So, again, it's good that it's in – these celebrities are taking upon themselves to um, put sleep at the forefront, which is – I mean, Ariana Huffington has, has yeah. been fantastic for that. So it's great. However, you know, you do – I just get a little bit tired. I'm just, you know, as the years go on, I'm just getting a bit tired. You, you want to see these articles with scientific reference points or with people. I did find one on an online space, and I'll put a link to that, that the, one, the heartening thing about it was that it had all Gwyneth's so-called tips on sleeping, but it also had the expert, which was one of our own, Professor Leon Lack, who's a professor just retired but still very active in the sleep world, psychologist, and, you know, enormous contributions to the sleep world mm -hmm. with his devices himself and, and with research and particularly in insomnia as well and, and the light. And so thank you, Leon, <laughs> if you're listening, because it's actually a really, it's good that at least everything that's spoken about, it's counted against a, an expert like Professor Leon Lack and what he says about it. So, so I call it, you know, Gwyneth versus Leon is my um, pick of the month. <laughs> Thank you. And Jay? Mine is a journal article. I think it's been put in as a 
news article as well by Gibson and Schroeder. It's called Time Use and Productivity, The Wage Return to Sleep. It has a look at the geographic location of cities and where they are in relation to the sun and where sunlight would be and compared it to the income of people in those areas and tried to take into account other things. Aside from it being, I think, really simple science, it's just it's just really clever, the methods that they've used. Mm-hmm. Wow. They found that there was a relationship between solar time and clock time compared to wages. And there's a 16% increase in wages when there is a better relationship between the solar time and clock time of that city. So in the long run, if you get an extra hour of sleep, you could perhaps earn 16% more. And I know that's not a you know, experimental study, so yeah. that's not the thing. But I do like yeah. the idea of you could sleep yourself rich. <laughs> yeah. Like Love that. it. Yeah, there's been a couple of other little tantalising pieces like that, you know, Jawbone we're talking about activity trackers, yeah. but Jawbone on their blog has published stuff about if, you know, which side of the state you live in. And if you live in the side of the state that's, that gets light early versus light late because, you know, states are often wider than one time zone, you know, how you change your work performance and change your health status. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think getting gets to that performance thing of humans perform best when they're in sync with the light-dark mm-hmm. cycle and their own intrinsic circadian cycle absolutely which is completely removed from often that older-fashioned managerial style of its bums on desks at 9am and everyone Mm. leaves at 5pm but that's a whole cultural change we've we've got to go through that's great i'll have to um look up that article it sounds good so thanks for listening to this episode and thanks moira and thanks james thank you thanks everyone if you've got any suggestions for the podcast or other topics you want us to cover email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au and review us on itunes and you can subscribe to the podcast via any podcast catcher or the sleep talk app this podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition